Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have two very special guests, returning guests. They are Tom and Brett of PSYOP Cinema, and I invited them on to talk about a movie I think is very important, something that I've studied. I've read the book. The movie is Fight Club by David Fincher, directed by Fincher, written by Chuck Palahniuk, starring Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. Helena Bonham Carter, Jared Leto's in there. There's some other kind of actors who are around, Meatloaf. But uh, we've also done, my first show with them was uh, about satanic violence, and we covered the Parallax View. We've also done shows on Under the Silver Lake, A Scanner Darkly, Conspiracy Theory. We covered Ed Sheeran and kind of his work, uh, Bad Habits. And then also talked with Thomas, with Theodore and Adam Waffen, guys. So that was an important one. Uh, right before the head, the former head of Atomwaffen got arrested uh, for trying to blow up the power stations around Baltimore. But I covered that in another show. You guys can check that out. But this movie, I think, is important. It was really at a kind of like high watermark or some kind of mark of cinema history. Uh, the timing was these other movies came out very super important. Obviously, The Matrix, everybody knows that, 1999. Also, Eyes Wide Shut, 1999, probably one of the most satanic movies, top five satanic movies ever made. The Ninth Gate came out in 1999. End of Days with Schwarzenegger, which was an attempt to kind of a came off kind of a cartoonish uh, kind of uh, religio satanic influence movie, but it also came out in 1999. And we were talking in the pre-show with Tom and Brett about a movie I need to watch. I'll probably end up watching it tonight. Arlington Road, uh, which I don't really know that much about, which I'm embarrassed to admit. But uh, anyway, we're going to talk about Fight Club. They've covered Fincher in detail and uh, know a lot about him and Leto as well, who's a very interesting character in his own right. But uh, Tom and Brett, welcome back to William Ramsey Investigates. Thanks, William. Always uh, always good to join you here. And there's so much to talk about with Fight Club. We, uh, we did cover it on our show a while ago as part of a part of a larger series on Fincher that you just mentioned, but I'm really glad to be able to revisit this one with you because it is just such an important note within the overall Hollywood psyop, in my opinion. Yeah, great to be here, William. Thanks. Cool. Awesome. I agree. And I think it's still important. I think that Tyler Jordan has become, I mean, at least for me, like an influential kind of like person who came out of cinema, whose people reference his statements and they remember his name or they use it as a screen name. So you'll see this Tyler Durden character around. So I think he kind of captured the nihilistic kind of zeitgeist, uh, uh, you know, world. So I think that that he's just the, the concept of, of this character within Fight Club is important. But what do you guys first kind of takeaways from the film? When you did it with Fincher, you looked at it through the lens of his directing, right? Is that right? Yeah, that, that that's right. And um, Fincher, we find to be uh, a very interesting and dark and important figure in a lot of ways. We, we covered some of the recurring themes within Fincher's filmography, especially serial killers, which the, the importance of that and of the pop cultural portrayal with all the divergence and psyops there, that'll, that, that'll be obvious to, uh, to you and your listeners. But Fincher, even though he has said he doesn't want to be the serial killer director, that's essentially what he is and that uh, that important shows up in a film like seven or later like Zodiac or the, uh, the mind hunter series that he was associated with for Netflix, huge psyop as well in terms of the overall idea of uh, this kind of de demonic deification of the figure of the serial killer um, in such a way that obscures all the, 
the real you know program to kill dynamics that were actually going on with that phenomenon. And so with with Fincher, there's this fixation on uh, on that kind of darkness as well as uh, just this the general perverse idea of humanity and human relations and human sexuality. And there's all this nihilism and in terms of the overall Hollywood alchemical dissolve and coagulate formula, uh, Fincher is very much a dissolve kind of guy. He's very much part of the this, I would say, even earlier phase of the cinema psyop that was all about destruction, nihilism and tearing apart uh, foundations of human society and, uh, and human psychology and all these things to make room, to make way, to, to, to pave the foundation for the religion of the future, for the new world order. And you get hints within Fincher, uh, and this I'll connect this to some of the themes in Fight Club later when we think about uh, the think about the, uh, the Marla Singer, Helena Bonham Carter character, uh, comparing that with someone like um, like the Lisbeth Salander character, Runa Mari's character in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is very important because in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, this kind of worship of the dark avenging feminine uh, subject I have a lot of thoughts on and people have heard uh, our other stuff or uh, Syap Cinema in general know. I think that's a very important part of where all of this is heading. But basically with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you get kind of hints of this uh, this construction of the dark, twisted, corrupted feminine. Uh, but then with a lot of Fincher stuff, there's things like we'll see in Fight Club, the the subtle corruption of masculinity, the, like we were talking about in the pre-show, the kind of psyop of, uh, of Tyler Durden and what he represents for kind of listless men at the end of history. So, those are, so that's some of the context going in. And I can say a little bit more in a moment about some of Fincher's other movies. Brett, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I basically just echo what Thomas uh, said, kind of kind of summing up the uh, analysis we did of this movie in the uh, second episode in our Fincher series. Um, so, um, well, the the use of Tyler Durden and and the use of this film in general, right, as a, a, a dissolving, uh, you know. Uh, kind of thing like to, uh, to to break down culture to break down the psyche I mean the, the term I use was cultural nihilism and yes Fincher is one of the probably foremost representatives of, of cultural nihilism which I think just characterizes you know the 90s the, the cynicism and the sarcasm are just kind of um, just a couple of the outward you know signs of it but um, this this complete uh, you know, bleak, annihilatory uh, take on on everything and on culture, and yeah. So Fincher with with Seven, with uh, Fight Club, with Alien. I mean, Alien Three is cosmic nihilism, which is, as we explained, was kind of of a piece with uh, cultural nihilism. So yeah, it fits into this this general category of cultural nihilism. And then the the Durden character and what he represents. The term I used was was the dark self. This is an archetype that I've I've tracked that again kind of. Um, peaks in the 90s uh, you see a lot of it everywhere now but I mean it's um, it involves this inversion of, of the image of God and um, it's related to the, the union concept right that the um, of, of the union of opposites and the 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 self the God image and the shadow image being having this uh, clandestine relationship I mean this comes up in um, well, I mean, in Joseph Campbell's analysis of, you know, like the secret uh, handshake between Set and um, uh, Horus, you know, in Egyptian mythology, but it, it instantiates itself in the movies in this kind of diabolical figure who also is obviously somehow uh, divine or transcended. I think one of the best examples of it is the Robert De Niro 
uh, Max Cady character in Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear uh, remake. Um, and that character is openly declaring himself to be God and quoting the um, uh, um, the Catholic mystic, Angelus uh, Silesius, I believe, right? Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think those are the... Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are that's my that's my reaction to what Thomas said. I think those are the kind of two of the big themes, um, and we'll we'll unpack that uh, a lot as we as we go along. I think there was a lot of analysis that we did on our show. So, and to say something in response to uh, to, to that, Brett, is that you just point out that the dark self being the this kind of archetype uh, behind Durden, that Durden is kind of hovering around, and that brings in our ongoing analysis of the Joker cycle of this feedback loop of spectacular crime and pop culture kind of hovering around this, this demonic egregore of, of the Joker figure. And then Fight Club, Durden, Fincher fits into all of that in a few ways, which isn't surprising because the overall Joker psyop that we've talked about so extensively, I mean, it's just everywhere in the overall satanic superculture and it's different assaults on the human. But some of the connections here are, are pretty evident. I mean, just think about the similarity uh, in both form and content of the fandom around Tyler Durden and that around of the that around the Heath Ledger Joker performance of these anarchic characters who are above it all and just so enticing in their destruction and subversion of society. I mean, it's 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 really the same kind of a, a archetype of a very online, very pop culture uh, interested or fixated, kind of somewhat discontented, like a young man who uh, wears the t-shirts and shouts the slogans for both of these characters who will quote Tyler Durden, as well as the, you know, introduce a little anarchy, all the chaos stuff from, from the Joker. And you, uh, so I just want to say from the beginning, maybe as the conversation goes on, we can pull out different threads of connection between this film and Fincher and, 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 and everything going on here with our Joker research. But just want to say that Tyler Durden is a prime example of a character who is kind of in the mold of the, this, uh, the, this glorification of psychopathy and being an anti-hero and rebellion and destruction, even in somewhat infantile ways as being this, uh, as being this laudable goal for masculine rebellion and all of this that we see in some ways a, a very, very pure example of with, with, with the Joker, especially the uh, Heath Ledger version and the later Joaquin Phoenix version that we've talked about so much, but then stretching back earlier to, you know, uh, Alex and the Clockwork Orange and all these other things, Durden is clearly in that lineage. And you, and even in a couple scenes in the movie, you really feel like, wow, like you could be watching like a Joker performance, especially when, uh, you know, Brad Pitt is gets beaten up by uh, you know, by the building owner Lou, and then he's jumping on him and la laughing and spitting the blood on him, and you don't know where I've been, Lou, and and all of that, just the hysterical laughter while he's getting beaten, and then like right. turning that around and the guy attacking him, pure Joker material. And there's a a lot of things like that, both on the micro scale of some of these mannerisms and on the macro scale of what is this psyop of uh, uh, of rebellion and subversion doing. Right. And there's always just this whole laughter theme within Flight, Fight Club. And there's actually like a direct reference to Clockwork Orange in the book itself. There's like a, a direct reference where he says, I hug the walls being a mouse trapped in this clockwork of silent men with the energy of trained monkeys. So like he, they're, they're direct, uh, directly, what is it? What was it? Alex DeLarge. I think that mm -hmm. was the name of the character in Clockwork Orange. So I think you're right. You see that whole theme, Joker to Tyler Durden. The, the laughing at it all and i think it's interesting the way he's juxtaposed with uh the character of norton you never know norton's name he's just the narrator right 
So this is kind of like this vapid, empty, consumerist Starbucks drinker uh, who's empty and wants to die in a plane crash with this other kind of vibrant. You could actually put, um, I would add into a theme of this character of Tyler Durden, this kind of occulted, you know, what, what the ONA would call exiatic, like somebody who's making changes in the world like a chaos magician. So I think that that's also really the Joker too. And there are overlaps. It is interesting that there's like sequences from Heath Ledger's movies and this movie where there, there's some kind of symbolism of being at the top of tall buildings or something. Because I think there's one important scene in uh, The Dark Knight Rises, I think is the one with Heath, Heath Ledger, where he like interrupts the rich person's you know party and has some huge event going on there. And this is also how it ends, right? They're up at the very top of this building, blowing up buildings and stuff like that. So I think it's, and there, there's huge mentions within the book Fight Club of like Rockefeller Center and these other buildings. So there's some kind of weird kind of correlation about this, the symbolic invasion or destruction of these high rises uh, that kind of even foreshadows 9-11 in some odd way. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else besides the predictive programming we'll get into. I, that's a good observation. I don't know what to say about the, the towers, but I can say a lot about the connections that the Tyler Durden character has to the Joker. And the, again, the fulcrum there is the, the dark self archetype. I mean, that's really what, what unites these. I, and I do think as Thomas was, was saying or implying that, um, especially the Heath Ledger Joker, was um, that was kind of the, the apotheosis of this dark self archetype. I think that was the point of how they were handling that character in The Dark Knight with, with Heath Ledger was they were trying to sort of get at the archetypal core. And then what you see with the Joaquin Phoenix Joker is this, um, they're using that archetype, right? But they're, they're humanizing this person and he has a split identity, right? Just like... Um, uh, uh, just like whoever the narrator's uh, name is, right? And this is his shadow side. Is is the Joker becomes the shadow side? And in both cases, they're they're sort of schmucks and losers. And um, if, if people listen to our Joker cycle episode, where we're, we're actually tracing the connections between the Joker and these Scorsese movies, uh, Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, and this. Um, figure that runs through them, which has now turned into the incel, but it's been kind of different things, right? But uh, the, the loner, the loser, the schmuck, um, but it's the the outsider character, the alienated outsider. And that's what this movie is, uh, is aimed at. And this Tyler Durden figure is how you manipulate um, that sort of that sort of figure. Um, I, I don't want to get sidetracked and go into our analysis of the, of the Joker, but I mean, one of the takeaways we had was that, that, that figure of the trickster clown Joker, which is, is, has a lot of spiritual depth to it. I'm not trying to, to minimize it, but it's function. The way it's being used is to control a mass of increasingly alienated people and isolated people. Right. And so in the Joker movie, Joker clown becomes that synonymous with everybody. We're all just clowns. We're all just jokers. We're all, you know, and so then that's everybody. So it's about controlling the crowd, controlling the masses. And he who controls the clown controls the crowd and he who controls the crowd controls um, the world. And this sort of takes us into conspiracy territory, because I think both this movie and the Joker are really about transitioning us into globalism. Um, and in a more offhand way, you could say that the, the previous, you know, Taxi Driver and um, King of Comedy, those had more specific uh, purposes, and there's a lot of connection. But I think these two movies, Fight Club and and um, and Joker, which are just really epical, absolutely epical movies, are really about transitioning people 
to globalism, but they're doing it in a Tyler Durden tricksterish way, as would be befitting a movie <laughs> where the, the trickster is the central archetype. And and Fight Club, just to focus on Fight Club. So Fight Club is sort of moving they're they're moving people into this sort of cult of austerity and anti-consumerism and so forth, right? To get them to accept um the, the World Economic Forum's new um policies <laughs> that we see essentially to accept the Great Reset. Right. No, it's interesting. I mean, and that's it. So Tyler is the one kind of putting, bringing people into that, but also through this kind of, uh, you know, secret society fight club thing. And, and if you read the book, it's much more clear that fight club is intended to bring down civilization and restart a new civilization. That theme is much more evident in the book. And it's a little bit more different uh, take than I think what's in the film, which doesn't emphasize that as much, but yeah. I definitely believe it's like they're they're talking about kind of changing an era, right? That's I think that that's really the intent of the 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 political intent behind Fight Club in the book, right? And you're yeah, you're right, William, that it's uh, not as emphasized as in the book, but the couple places where where it is, I think, are very revelatory and very important. And you mentioned earlier about the references in the book to the Rockefeller Center and there's and with with all this stuff about the tall buildings and things like that you reference the scene in the dark night uh where the, the Joker is interrupting this fundraiser and so there's yeah I think that imagery is very important throughout these movies not not just with the kind of 9-11 predictive programming that's the climactic scene of Fight Club that I find very important but you know there's uh, you get to another important reference earlier in the movie. One of the Project Mayhem pranks is creating this huge smiley face, this huge burning smiley face on a skyscraper. And so the, uh, so it, it's pretty clear the kind of things going on there. But this one, the one scene from Tyler uh, where Tyler has this mini monologue that's very important in the movie after this car wreck scene where they, they've almost died and the, the narrator wakes up and he just, and, and Tyler is saying that the lines are in the world i see you are stalking elk through the damp canyon forest around the ruins of rockefeller center you'll wear leather clothes that will last you for the rest of your your life you'll climb down rich the kudzu vines that wrap the sears tower and when you look down you'll see tiny figures pounding corn laying strips of venison on the empty carpool lane of an abandoned superhighway so there's a lot of interesting things going on there and i think brett and i also highlighted those lines when we did our own episode on Fight Club over a, over a year ago, but you see this this um, this injunction to destroy society as it presently exists. It's packaged in this rebellious form that uh, that is jumping off of the, the really good satire against kind of consensus reality. What we, we could call the first matrix, as opposed to the more sophisticated second gnostic second matrix of pseudo rebellion, but just the the IKEA and Starbucks first matrix. The that that contextualizes these lines from Tyler, where he's basically trying to recruit people into, like you're saying, William, a secret society meant to destroy meant to destroy existing culture. But really, what's just going on there is people are ending up doing the bidding of the globalists for free, like uh, thinking that they're being rebellious, but all they're doing is just creating chaos, destroying existing structures so that the globalist, the new world order can be built on top of that. And that's a lot of what the overall Joker PSYOP is doing, the Joker cycle, which Fight Club touches, like Brett and I were just talking about. It's destroying existing conceptions of the human in a way that people can think is, oh, that's either 
either in a first matrixy kind of way, oh, this is an authentic expression of me, or in a second matrix kind of more hard-edged, Gnostic kind of way. The second matrix can take different forms, um, and you can think about some of Jason Horsley's work or some of our conversations with Jason uh, to think more about that. But one of those ways is this kind of hard-edged, Tyler Durden, dissociative, ubermensch fantasy of I'm going to burn everything down. And it does make me think about some of the Order of Nine Angles stuff as well, because so much of what's going on here is it's infiltration. It's all about a society that we're everywhere. We're, we're joining these structures. You don't even know about it. And we're gaining power that way. And it, it also, it's some of the pattern that we talked about, um, that I, I talked about with, with, with Theodore on Psy of Cinema. And then when both Theodore and I came on came on this show, William, and we all, we all talked about is the, the pattern of how the Adam Waffen division started out thinking that they were fighting the power, that they were going to destroy this corrupt, uh, evil society. And then they ended up just in the, in the throes of uh, the worst kind of, uh, the worst kind of satanic occult mind control. Yeah. Uh, very, very similar to what's going on here. The, the, the Tyler diversion uh, just being this, uh, the, this way that people think that they're absolutely free, absolutely breaking down the psychological and social bonds of the corrupt first matrix. And really all they're doing is breaking stuff so that other stuff can be built on top of it. Yeah, it's true. But there, you're right. It is like a secret society thing, this acceleration theme that the far right had of just blowing stuff up, but not really achieving anything and getting themselves thrown in jail or if not killed. Uh, but it's very similar. I mean, I think it is kind of like the ONA. I mean, you have these guys in different spots and they're winking and nodding at each other, right? All the time. And they have, they have the inside and the fight club is the way in, but in the book too, they, they liken the entry into fight club as a monastic order. So there's all Palmyak adds all this monastic stuff in there. You put money in your shoe in case you die. So you have your burial paid for. It's very kind of grim, you know, stark kind of mentality, but it's definitely a secret society, and then, like you say, like smiley faces. There's other smiley faces throughout the that are hidden throughout the film. There's other sequences that have it. They're very short clips, but they're in that building. There's up on the wall, so you see that tie-in which the ONA has to the smiley face and everything else. Just like all the themes of the Alan Moore and the comedian and all that stuff. It that archetype bleeds over into so many different important films and concepts in the society. So I, th I think you're right. I think that, that Fight Club is another cult acculturation piece to kind of foment the breakdown of the system and bring in this kind of darker, uh, make everybody a chaos magician to a certain extent. I think it's kind of an initiatory film in that way. I, I think so too. And I, I think the 9-11 piece is, is really, really key here. I mean, that probably goes without saying, but another difference between the end of the book and the end of the film's end of the film, though the buildings actually do blow up, right? It doesn't, doesn't fail with the, the narrator being taken off into, uh, you know, to a site where they think is heaven, you know, basically what happens at the end, of, at the end of the book. But we very distinctly get the, the, the movie ends with, uh, with the narrator and Marla holding hands, the buildings blow up, you know, this is a, you know, a couple years before 9-11 and the, the, the predicted programming is really not particularly subtle here, both in the overall theme but then in just the one of the, the the very first lines in the first phrases we hear in the first seconds of the movie is uh, is is ground zero. And then uh, shortly after that, we get the reference to Tyler's controlled demolition thing. So like in terms of uh, 1990s predictive programming for 9-11, like this is a top shelf example. 
hundred percent. So true. Really incredible. And that, that's the change that they had in the film. So they're watching it. And you want to talk about the theme of the film or the theme of Tyler Durden and then extrapolate that into real world events of 9-11, destructing and bringing back, right? So, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the towers go down. But in, in the book, it is the tie to the kind of what you talk about is, is the Joker archetype. And that is, in the book, he blows his cheek out and it gives him the jagged smile. He says, here, I tore my other cheek to give me a jagged smile. From ear to ear, yeah, just like an angry Halloween pumpkin, Japanese demon, dragon of avarice. And in the film, you, he does shoot himself, but it doesn't have that kind of symbolic uh, imp import that's in the book. But um, yeah, the 9-11 stuff, throw in the, the Karyotid, right? So they blow up the Karyotid that goes into the Starbucks. That's another 9-11, uh, you know, hint. I'm wondering if there's anything else in there. I guess the 11 would be Tyler Durden's name, right? So the five and the six, like Harry, like Harry Potter. So you see that kind of, there's a magical intent there. I think Palniak did that intentionally. Um, so he is a kind of like a uh, culted magical figure in, in, in addition to the archetypes that he has and the stuff he says. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of secret society uh, themes in this. So it makes me, I, and I heard of Palniuk. I mean, if you want to go back in and talk about some of Palniuk's, I guess he was part, somebody was trying to tell me about this. He was part of kind of a, another secret society. Was it you guys who told me about it? Was it the Cacophony Society? Have you heard that? Hmm. No, that wasn't from us. I don't, I don't okay. know as much about it. I spend a lot of time talking to you. But yeah, apparently there's a Cacophony Society that he was a member. And they, they involves costumes and pranks in public spaces. And place going places that are off limits to the public. So there was like a Seattle chapter or Portland. I think that's where he lives. So they might have he might have gotten some kind of uh, in, inspiration from that. And their goal, you can just read it on on Wikipedia, is to uh, a network of free spirits united in the pursuit of experiences beyond the pale of mainstream society. It's it was an outgrowth of something called the Suicide Club. So you can kind of see uh, those kind of ideas may have come into. His life, and apparently he lives on a compound, like a, a walled compound somewhere outside of uh, Portland, too. So, he, yeah, which used to be which used to be a church, right? Is that right? Oh, wow! Yeah. So that's pretty symbolic, too. Yeah, and I mean, there's, I mean, you talked about kind of God, and there's other really kind of uh, very negative kind of Nietzschean maybe statements about God and people and who who the identity and how you can change things in Fight Club that I think are very profound. And not a, not in a good way, but he says, like, if you're a male and you're a Christian living in America, your father is your model for God. And if you never know your father, if your father bails out or dies or is never at home, what do you believe about God? So it's kind of like the father figure, you know, gets taken out of this book. So there's really an emptiness there for both of them. Right. So you never hear anything about the narrator or Tyler Durden's family members. Right. They're totally alone, which I think is uh, very telling. Yeah, and I, I think that's in the movie too. Of course, the the same the same speech right, oh, about right. how fathers are models for God. So, and it, it's so explicit that I mean, it, it's like I I mean, I just noted to myself that it's really a tipping of the hand that all of these attacks by Hollywood, these uh, endless attacks by Hollywood on the image of the father, they're, they're part of this overall assault on the image of God. I mean, it's made pretty explicit there. And so, um, I've I, I mean, one of the I guess maybe like the central thing I want to communicate to people on our, our entire show, right. Is that what Hollywood is doing is they're, they're trying to destroy your soul. 
right? They're, they sold their souls. They're trying to destroy yours. Not that they really can, but they're trying to destroy your soul and you're made in the image of God. And so these attacks on the image of God through the medium of sentiment are about effacing the image of God within you and getting you to, to, to reject the, and to reject the father, the father's bad. And, and then God is bad. And, and, you know, and so I remember also there's a slogan in Tyler, we trust, which again, that's part of the dark self archetype. Tyler is replacing God. Tyler is becoming God. The shadow is becoming God. Power is, is becoming God. So, you know, so he becomes a surrogate father and surrogate God and he's, and he's a cult leader, right. But pretending to be an anarcho, uh, primitivist revolutionary and so i think it was because an anarcho-primitivism and it's in the movie you're right it's more it's been a long time since i read the book i read the book not long after the movie came out i haven't read it since but um i mean the anarcho-primitivism is, is in the movie like in that speech that that thomas was quoting it was clear that he is he's advocating anarcho-primitivism and uh that's not a like historically speaking not like a super popular philosophy but it was like peaking at this point in the 90s i mean you had ted kazensky um and you know people like john zerzan and, and stuff so it was like it, it had was it was a thing at that time and I, I mean i think and this fits into the cult theme and what happens in the movie with the cult it seems to be one thing but it leads you to another thing the anarcho-primitivism it turns out was was setting people up um, not to be, you know, whatever laying strips of venison on, on an overgrown superhighway, but to accept the austerity that, that's coming because the, they couldn't, the, the elites can't provide you anymore. They, it's not convenient for them to provide you anymore with the consumer lifestyle. So they need to get you to think that consumerism is passe and soulless and whatever, and we're all going to have a green new deal. And I mean, that's really what this was setting up. So in the movie, the cult seems to be one thing, right? And then it turns into another thing. And then maybe it's another thing. And that's how these cults work in general, in these secret societies, right? You don't, it, what it even seems to be from the outside. I mean, think the Freemasons, what does the Freemasons look like from the outside? You know, there's... Right charitable societies or, or whatever they're they're supposed to be but yeah it's it you're i don't know much about polonic but it, it does stand to reason that he knows more um than he seems to then then we know that he knows i don't know about um how cults work and maybe he is on the inside i just want to say too the, the anarcho primitivist thing so that's the that's the dissolution that's the dissolve phase and that's what cults are doing too. they're dissolving your personality and then they're they're remaking it and it through i mean other initiatory organizations they work kind of like this and so um you know the next phase is the coagulate um phase and so you know you're told uh, you know, you're not special. You're all part of the same compost. He's literally describing coagulation, right? Like describe, you're coming back together. Now you're being broken off and then you're coming back together. You're not special. You're all part of the same compost heap. And it's, he's, it's all dialectics, right? You go from one thing to its opposite, right? And then around again. Um, so yeah, we can talk a lot about that, but it's incredibly revelatory. I mean, when you know this stuff and you look back at this movie, um, there's a lot of revelation of the method going on here. Totally agree. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake, right? <laughs> so you're not special. That's the opposite of God's view of every person, right? Right, right. And it's the the complex thing there is that the movie and and, and the book, of course, they they smuggle in just enough truth about just the just the the empty and superficial nature of um, of service level consumer culture and critique that. That in terms of these uh, these narcissistic ideas of oh what 
piece of furniture in my living room best represents me as a person like you know the the, the yin yang table and all like in the, the movie and the book are correctly mocking and attacking like that idea of i'm special but then they replace that with this this form of oh i'm special because i recognize how empty i am and how empty everything is but rather than actual standing up for you know uh, god's view of humanity and the idea of the existence of logos and divine order and all these things the masculine rebellion at this this kind of feminization of culture turns into just this this very infantile dangerous adolescent this lashing out at first in more silly uh but somewhat more harmless ways with like the project mayhem pranks that tyler durden assigns to people but then we see it's oh it's literally building up uh, blowing up buildings in a way that is coded as uh, as as prediction for 9/11 towards the end, and um, I uh, oh let me just throw another a, a slight tangent that I find interesting about 9/11 predictive programming stuff is uh, that uh, I think I even thought of this when I was a while ago watching your uh, a called Hollywood documentary William, but with some of the really iconic examples like in uh, the Matrix, um, you know Thomas Anderson's uh, driver's license expiration right. or um, or enemy of the state, uh, the, the the birthday of the antagonist. These being 9-11, in both those cases, it's in, it's funny to me that the name Thomas is visible with Thomas Anderson and then Thomas Reynolds, I think it is, the villain of uh, the the villain of Enemy of the State, because you know, Thomas means twin, so the twin towers. So, you know, that's that that that's a part of the 9-11 predictive programming stuff that doesn't, I think, get emphasized enough when it comes to those uh comes to the showing of those dates, even though it stands out to me for obvious reasons. Um, but at this point, I think something worth pointing out is that. Fight Club can be a movie that is, uh, and a cultural phenomenon, both Fincher's vision of it and Polynuck through the book, that uh, can be hard to, to interpret because there's just been so much discourse about it because it is, it, there are some genuine complexities in terms of uh, what does the movie and book think of Tyler Durden? Is it trying to glorify him, trying to critique him? To what extent is it successful at those things? Like these, these aren't simple questions, even you know, for someone like, like me or for Brett, who uh, you know, who do this stuff all the time, trying to analyze and make plain like our right, what is the perspective of a given piece of media. But just to just to summarize, because it might be helpful, some of the major perspectives that people will find on Fight Club, and then to situate with situate my own uh, kind of within that landscape of interpretations is that yeah, so there's the the basic idea that well, the the movie, uh, the, I'll I'll just stick with the movie because even Polynuk I think says that the movie supersedes the book in terms of uh, in terms of the vision that it articulates. I think that's important. So at least the movie uh, people sometimes think all right, the movie loves Tyler, it vindicates Tyler, and that's good because Tyler's awesome. You know that is it is true that that I think sometimes gets overemphasized by critics. Of, uh, of the film, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a second, but it is the case that a lot of people do just watch this movie and be like, yeah, joining a fight club is awesome, Tyler Durden's awesome, and um, and uh, they'll, they'll quote all of Tyler's Nietzschean lines and anti-consumerist lines and just make him into a hero like they make the Joker or Alex or whoever else into a hero, and of course, this is, uh, this is not particularly sophisticated as it ignores a lot of pretty obvious cues Towards the end of the film, uh, in the last half hour, that uh, that that yeah, Tyler is not the movie's ultimate vision. That there are limitations to what he's uh, to what he's trying to do or what he wants for the narrator. Um, some important examples of that would be his line about 
Bob, uh, you know, the character, uh, the, the meatloaf character, you know, dies and narrator is torn up about that. And Tyler says, oh, yeah, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs or something to that effect. And that's obviously supposed to be coded as callous, as unthinking, as, as wrong. Tyler's supposed to be wrong about that. Or when Tyler is taunting the narrator toward the end about, oh, you just don't want to blow up these buildings because you want to go back to Ikea and watching sitcoms and all that. Those ring kind of hollow. It's very clear to the audience that the narrator has evolved and changed and isn't advocating for that. So there's a few different things like that towards the end that the film is clearly indicating uh, the shortcomings uh, of Tyler. So the idea that Tyler's philosophy is just awesome doesn't, I think, really fly. Um, other people seem to think that uh, basically the opposite interpretation that the movie is glorifying Tyler and that's bad because, oh, this is this awful vision. And usually that's not critiqued. Uh, that critique isn't coming from a place like we're talking about in terms of this, this subtle psyop um, that against the idea of, uh, of fatherhood or, uh, or a genuine positive social values against the new world or any of that. Usually this is coming from kind of a, a pretty low rent, you know, woke or progressive or at least proto-woke place of like, oh, it's toxic masculinity or any of these things. And, um, and uh, basically the, that, that critique dislikes Tyler in the movie for all the wrong reasons. They dislike it because there's something in here that's positive and appealing to the masculine. That's a sense of vitality trying to break out of Ikea and Starbucks culture and all of that. And they think like, oh, you, that any attempt to do that is necessary from a pro-masculine perspective is necessarily fascist. And that's, of course, very similar, very silly. And that falls short for the same reasons I just mentioned, because there's all of these indications Towards the uh, towards the end of the movie, that the movie isn't endorsing uh, Tyler in, in this very straightforward way, um, and then there's the kind of uh, from that same cultural perspective, uh, the idea that oh no, the movie is critiquing Tyler, and that's uh, that's good because uh, his toxic masculinity is bad. This kind of leftist woke reclaiming a Fight Club that I've seen, where people like they'll point out. I've seen this with like leftists on Twitter and stuff. They'll point out the homoerotic subtext and be like, oh, that's great, and all, and, and 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 all of these things. And I think. Think that that's um, that that misses a lot too because uh, well for one thing there's some subtle there's some much more subtle vindications of Tyler at the end of the movie that I think often aren't aren't what's aren't what ta- is what is talked about when people are saying is Fincher successful with his satire or not because there's all these overtures Fincher makes so those are three major major perspectives that I would reject them all and say instead. We need to look at Tyler as this much more subtle side, this much more subtly enacted dissociative fantasy that's bad, not because of the toxic masculinity, but because this is a destruction of the masculine from a kind of initiatory occult, new world order, ang- new world order angle that is uh, just clearing space for the kind of dark avenging feminine of girl with a dragon tattoo of the like. And the, the major things I would point to there are the way that the narrator escapes Tyler at the end is by embracing Tyler's program of self-destruction. He kills Tyler by shooting himself in the head. And there's the kind of more subtle illusion in the movie as opposed to the book of the kind of facial disfiguration, smiley face joker stuff that you were talking about. Well, there, William, but he 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 follows Tyler's advice finally. He, 
he hits bottom in the way Tyler has been telling him to do the whole movie, and that's how he gets rid of Tyler. And he basically assumes the Tyler role, where he's now now he's confidently commanding the Project Mayhem guys, and now he's the one who has this romantic connection with with, with, with Marla and all. He's achieved these things by fully embodying the Jordan ethos that he's been rejecting this whole time. So it's not that he's overcome the Tyler psyop; he's fallen totally into dissociation and then of course there's that uh split second pseudo subliminal clip of pornography in the last few seconds right. of the movie which tells us that that's tyler tyler is the one who does that tyler is editing the movie that we're watching so we've just seen tyler die but he hasn't really died we have fully entered the psyop in a way that the marla character and tyler are a kind of like the narrators now beholden to them both. And that's a whole different thing that I can speak more to, but in general, just to summarize, these are the, the reasons that people it's, this is a very subtle psyop uh, that has all this cultural staying power because it's hard to critique straight on because these, all these interpretations, uh, the, the movie loves Tyler and that's good because, because uh, his vision's wrong movie loves Tyler. That's bad because his vision's bad also wrong. And then like, well, like I said, the kind of leftist reclaiming, Oh, the movie's critiquing Tyler. That's good because it's talk about toxic, toxic masculinity also bad. All these wrong interpretations, none of them exactly understand what's going on. So just, just that's my attempt to kind of piece together the complex fight club discourse. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's interesting how people can look into kind of a film or just any work of art and kind of read it through their own through through their own lens, you know. So whatever lens they hold up to it, I think you can see a lot of different stuff. But I think objectively, there obviously are two characters. There's a narrator and Tyler, and he's leading the narrator on. He's Tyler, this this character. I think there's four snips within the film of Tyler putting in different pictures of himself that like he appears and leaves. So he's almost like a Kind of like a you know spectral influence on the film itself as well as on the narrator but i think at the end it all comes to like they're split personalities and then they they reassociate it but he he's carrying on with the project right so the narrator carries on and i think so the narrator's being initiated i think the audience is being initiated as well they're learning all these techniques all the nihilism to go through all the testing phases right so the burn like there's the reference to dune itself with the burning of the hand, you know, the pain. Can you eat the pain? There's that sequence. There's the drive, like uh, playing chicken with the with the uh, truck. So I think that really it's like a, a dual purpose initiation and you people want to become like the male, the emasculated male of society um, in a very, you know, what do you call it? Socialized, sociological, socialized society. Follow wants to follow this Tyler Durden to the end, and I think that's really the psyop. I think for me, that would be my interpretation is that the real powerful psyop to me is that people, and that's happened to me, is that you come out the other end and you go, Wow, that Tyler Durden guy is trying to save me from a you know boring milk toast emasculated lifestyle. That's my take. Yeah, the, the, the black eye ritual thing comes. You mentioned the, right. the pain black thing, the black eye, and there's a people look into that. There's a lot of speculation that this is one stage of the ritual initiatory process, and which lends credence to the idea that Fight Club is kind of subtly revealing um, some of those things. I, to like uh, what. What Thomas was talking about, how, how we're supposed to react to Tyler Durden and, and interpret him. I I mean, I remember 
Well, see, I think the film, again, in keeping with the revelation of the method thing going on with this movie, like I think it says different things to different people because it's designed to say different things to different people. Um, it's designed to stay one step ahead, you know, of everybody. But I mean, I remember watching it and I, I was probably slightly younger than the main intended audience. I, mean, I was like 17, but probably close to the intended audience and I don't reasonably intelligent. So not getting like the lowest IQ sort of interpretation of it. And it seemed like, it seems obvious in the, the last act of the film that Tyler Durden is, has, okay. He's realizing this is, this is something's nutty about this guy. And uh, something was obviously right. I can't shake him. So we're obviously supposed to sort of get beyond Tyler. And then he seems to be telling him, right to to you know why you needed me where i came from what i am and i'm really you and so he's you're supposed to get beyond this but i mean this is in keeping with the idea that the anarcho primitivist stuff that tyler was selling and the rest of it was all just uh, a medium uh, to for something else right it's all just leading him on as you said you know to something to something else so the movie primarily i believe is a site we can talk about some of the reasons why relate to to fincher and his background the type of stuff that, that he makes but i mean i think you you can help to you can get some understanding of why different people feminists or incels or ever are reading the movie the the way it the way it is i think um so i i think that like the left the way the left views the film as a deconstruction of toxic masculinity and and the rest of it it's like i think they can see that the filmmaker there's a certain irony here uh, to everything and so you have to even the, the 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 apparent you know affirmation of a certain type of masculinity is is there's some tongue-in-cheek there and because there is but it's not because it's a de it's meant to be a deconstructive masculinity no it's meant to appeal to to proto insults it's directed at, at okay but it can it can seem that way um you know to, to somebody who's coming at it from from that angle right just like somebody who is the target audience is is really going to idolize uh tyler and see him as an entirely positive figure and after all right tyler appears in the last tyler gets the last laugh about the laugh thing i wanted to say too i don't know if um i don't know if you've ever seen you have a you have one of the dvd covers showing but i have another one that was a special edition dvd or something it was released right it's got like a in fact it looks like a package like a brown paper bag package yes and it's got like almost like right it's it's sending you i mean this is in keeping with the psychological warfare thing going it's like sending you a bomb or something because it is a psychological bomb and there's all kinds of like even in the packaging there's all kinds of weird stuff and it's it's very elaborate. It's very baroque. And I think in the DVD they had like a warning too, like what you're reading is you know there was some yeah. kind of funny warning about the film, right? Yes, and, and yes, indeed, right. And then when you and then when you go to the menu, it's that Tyler laughing from when Lou uh, beats him up. It's the it's the Tyler laughing, which and goes the smiling face, face, right? It's the goes, laugh, yeah, smiling face, yes. Exactly that archetype. But there's just no question that that archetype is in play. I hope your your listeners are, are pretty astute. I hope they get that. There's like not any doubt about it. It's that same trigger, that same archetype, that same Joker smiley face, mischief, mayhem um, archetype, which is intimately connected to uh, clandestine operations and to psychological warfare. Um, in in particular, you've seen the fourth. Have you seen that fourth uh, psyops um, YouTube video? 
so-called recruiting video with the clown and, and stuff. You don't have to play the whole thing, but I would advise I'll you to pull, see. I can pull it up right now. I mean, yeah, they use the figure of the clown and the ghost and all the world's a stage. And this this and this goes to that trickster archetype, which is also intimately tied to the theater and to Dionysus. I mean, you can really you can really go go deep on this this archetype. And I got like Justin. I'm sorry, Justin. Um, I'm going to my Do I go to the Skyop group? Is that where the video is? Yes, yes, it's the the fourth uh, side. But Jonathan Pajot, machine, right? That one. That's the one. Goes to yeah. the, but Jonathan Pajot. I just want to say, really, is a is a great uh, orthodox symbologist who who does a great analysis of the Joker um, archetype. Didn't you just have him on? Didn't you? Is that right? Unfortunately, no. We we hope to we hope to get yeah, him Father on. Deacon Anias Sorum. That's who it was. Yes. Let me see if I can pull this up. So this has some kind of Joker theme, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, it's got this clown uh, figure here, and it and it's like there's there's direct. Yeah, it shows actually. It's almost like a shot. It's not the like the opening shot of the Joker. You'll almost see here with the clown looking in the mirror. All the world's a stage is the slogan, and this is a um, this is a piece of psychological warfare, by the way, directed at the public, uh, posing as a quote. I don't know if it's a whatever it is. It's called a recruitment ad. You can decide for yourself what you think it is. Um, you want me to play the whole thing? Well, you don't have to. I mean, I'm just uh, but you, there is like an image right out of the Joker there. They're using the, the character of the Joker and also the uh, a ghost, right? Like a spook also is a symbol. And they're saying we're everywhere in the video and. You know, we're here. We go. We're everywhere. Literally, it says that, right? They're everywhere. They're there. That's this is also a for, this is also a form of spiritual terrorism, right? They're they're trying to make the public afraid. Oh, we don't exist. You can't say we exist. You're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and that and we're everywhere and we control everything at the same time. I mean, they're right. they're trying to yeah, they're trying to psychologically intimidate people, and that is the the playbook of psychological warfare. Go Michael Aquino. Right, who wrote the uh, uh, one of the, the definitive modern statements of psychological warfare said the key to it is making it appear to your enemy and to yourself like your victory is inevitable, that you're omnipotent, right. that you become omnipotent by pretending to be omnipotent. Interesting. This is just a screenshot of another smiley face. You can see it above the phone. So they're, they're littered throughout this film if you just keep an eye out. So that's like the symbol of the new magical world, right? The new Aeon. That's what it means. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find that that smiley face. I have it somewhere on my computer. I just can't can't find it. But I do have a picture of that kind of in, initial smiley face on the DVD. So it's definitely there. I'm just trying to find it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll mention also that with that that ad that um, that ad that recruiting supposed recruiting ad for uh, you know for Army Psychological Operations and its use of. It's you know it's use of the clown figure. I mean, Brett was speaking some of its importance, and I just think it's so striking how much that ties together the the kind of liminality of the trickster figure and the clown, and how that can manifest in terms of uh, in terms of espionage and spycraft, uh, in terms of uh, you know bending the truth and existing in uh, instable in uh, instable structures rather than and undermining things and subverting things and all these things that we associate with spies and spycraft and espionage. Then also as the as the clown as a figure of uh, of entertainment of the theater and all of these things and that all comes together in the joker archetype in a lot of ways but then also uh, also in things like that like that recruitment ad that we were just talking about yeah here's a sequence i have this is kind of like the, the smiley face that they have but also the laugh you know the laugh at the antics of uh of this whole thing let me see if i can pull this up 
the audio volume. Let's go. There we go. And there's Lido right there too, right? Two six packs. This is this is Lawrence Sanchez. Ah, yes. Yeah, uh, uh, Bezos's new squeeze. It's pretty amazing. She's in this. Um. Yeah, I made some. I actually made some notes recently. I I rewatched the movie uh, again, unfortunately. Um. And I had some. Yeah, I noticed some things about. Yeah, like I know that I know that Lauren Sanchez. You know, um. And uh, where do I have here? Sorry, she. Now that's a hand signal too. That's an occult hand signal. When you join, like one or two stages in the OTO, it's like a thumb thing. They grab each other's thumb. That's what he's doing right here. Just arrived on the scene here of a four-bar fire that broke out about an hour ago. Live from the Morris Building, North Sanchez. Back to you, Mr. Yeah. Just. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, yeah, I think with Lauren Sanchez, um, I, I think what's going on here is this the, the feedback loop that we talked about in our Joker series, uh, where you've got like spectacular crime and assassinations and things uh, uh, linked to movie influences and so forth, and then the movies influencing people to do things and the copycats and the sort of what we think is a directed uh, feedback loop. I mean, I think the Lauren Sanchez thing is part of that. She was supposed to be a reporter at the time, but then she's playing a reporter in this movie, which is her first feature film credit, covering a staged event. And so now we're into this recursive revelation of the method thing that she's a fake news reporter, pretending to be a real news reporter, pretending to be a fake news reporter, um, right? Um, and just there's a lot of weird things about her. She she started this company called Black Ops Aviation, uh, <laughs> you know. And yes, you mentioned recently with uh, uh, with Bezos. Also, remember Leto is looking at the screen when she comes on, and he very conspicuously and blankly says she's hot, and she's been like voted you know most beautiful person, whatever. I mean, they're they're showing you that that we control that we say who's hot and who's not hot, and you're Leto. You're the dope, you know, looking at the screen. And by the way, his career also was predictively programmed through this movie when Tyler's giving the middle children of history speech. And he says, we were all thought we were going to be movie stars and rock stars. And he looks directly at Leto kind of contemptuously. And of course, Leto was just then or even before that, or not even yet uh, launching his band. Um, so they're predictively programming a lot of stuff in this movie. Yes, including 9-11. Yeah, here's another 9-11 uh, predictive kind of thing. There was like a sequence where they were looking at the blueprints and it says North Tower building in Plaza, you know, referencing uh, everything, referencing Manhattan. That was an interesting one. But here's the other. They, this is something that wasn't really mentioned. It was mentioned in the book, but not in the film, was this screenshot of the human sacrifices. It's a direct reference to human sacrifice. And... Uh, it's incredible. So that was kind of, they might may have like edited out of the film, but it definitely certain pieces of it were there. And there's a sequence in the book where the narrator has to carry around 12, uh, 12 licenses to show that he committed 12 human sacrifices. So it's, it's much more dark in the book. It's really, I mean, it's a dark film, but the book talks more about the soap as sacrifice and stuff like that. So when people see that picture of the soap, it's the symbolic representation of sacrifice. It's crazy. 
Yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting just how uh, how how explicit that is in the book. Like you're talking about that aspect is much darker, but I I, I do think that there's just some of the just the surface level. The premise of the film is twisted beyond you know what most people usually give it credit for in terms of the, this this whole generation of movie going young men who just get so infatuated with like it's all about schizophrenia. You know, the whole thing is about the narrator has fallen into so much despair that his mind splits and he's hallucinating. Like it's a really horrific thing yeah. that gets that gets glorified. And because it's cool Brad Pitt doing cool Brad Pitt things, um, you know, people people lose sight of that or because of all the satire and because of all the kind of and philosophy and the Anprim stuff, but this is about this is this is about dissociation. This is about a mind being destroyed and possessed by this the, this superhuman fantasy. This is a dissociative superhuman fantasy. And uh, and and one thing in the movie that when I re and I you know, I've seen the movie so many times and I rewatched it for this episode, of course. And you know, one thing that I really appreciated this time in a dark way was just how sinister that that is. And the movie knows it because. When uh, towards the end, when the narrator is trying to stop Tyler's scheme of blowing up the buildings, and then he's having this fight with Tyler, and you see the security footage of uh, of of the narrator kind of dragging himself around because there's no one there. Just the sound design, just the music, how creepy it is! Like it seems like you have this sense in that sequence, that brief sequence of the movie of the haunting aspect of what's happening, of the demonic aspect, and then it goes more into its normal mode as you have him and Tyler bantering when he's tied up in the next scene but watching that and just like paying attention to just how it sounds and how it looks there's something really horrifying and demonic going on in terms of this character being possessed by his fantasy of being this character who can replace god right no i mean the more you look at it the darker it gets it really gets darker and then the human sacrifice theme in the book like is another foreshadowing of 9-11 like it's it's there it's gets very Dark and then in the book, there's a lot of killings. I mean, imagine all these people in Fight Club who are all supposed to commit their own human sacrifice all over the world with their all their different branches and stuff. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I think some of the analysis that that uh, don't cover this darker aspect or don't address it are leaving out a, a crucial uh, aspect of the book. And I think that's even referenced in the book in the film as well. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I just think one of the things that probably drew Hollywood to to the project um, is how dissociation is being celebrated and glorified in the book, and that's the, I would say one of the master themes of of uh, Hollywood or or in a certain era um, of of Hollywood is this glorification of the dissociated state, which is the state of the mind control victim and the state of the suggestive. Um, you know, viewer at the same time. And so in the, but I, I just read something today that relates to this and also to the DVD, the secret messages in the DVD. There was a Blu-ray, I guess, that came out some years ago. I don't have it. And when you, when you boot it up, it looks, it, it makes, it looks like it's the movie never been kissed, but with Drew Barrymore. Um, and even the articles, like a looper article, they pointed out that that movie also involves split personality and dissociation. And you remember Drew Barrymore is seen on a magazine cover. Um, in the film, and Drew Barrymore, I did a whole episode in my Monarch series related to Drew Barrymore and her background as a you know third, fourth, fifth generation, whatever it was, um, entertainment industry Hollywood uh, person who uh, shows a lot of the evidence of being um, 
managed, <laughs> shall, shall we say, in the way that Britney Spears and others uh, um, are being psychologically managed. Oh, by the way, Brett, I wanted to, something I wanted uh, to say is that maybe you could speak better to this, but the connections to the Joker cycle in terms of the narrator's aliases and that's connection to Scorsese stuff. You want to explain that? Oh, yes, indeed. So, yeah, so this movie is is uh, deliberately playing into the, the what we call the Joker cycle, the, the feedback uh, loop. Um, uh, two of the aliases that the narrator uses when he goes to the support groups are Travis and Rupert, which I searched the novel and no, he does not use those in the novel. And Fincher says in the audio commentary on the DVD that, yes, he was referring to the, the Scorsese characters. Travis um, by the way, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, William. It was Travis Bickle, right? Yeah, Travis Bickle and Rupert Pupkin. And by the way, if you ever watched that movie Neighbors, that Seth Rogen uh, movie, um, they have a, 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 what do they call it? A De Niro party, uh, the, the, the frat house neighbors, and they're dressing up like De Niro characters, including Rupert Pupkin and, and Travis um, Bickle and those those characters are key in you know our, our Joker cycle. I don't want to get too far afield, but people may know that John Hinckley Jr. supposedly um, shot Reagan because he was obsessed with Taxi Driver. Right. Um, so uh, ta uh, so Fight Club as well is, is. By the way, Fight Club had to the release had to be delayed because of Columbine um, right? fears of topic. So there was so somebody was making a connection right to these kinds of spectacular. What I call them spectacular crimes, spectacle crimes, um, and and media. There, uh, notice well the the producer of Fight Club is Arnon Milchan, who is a, I mean I'm not saying anything that is not uh, public record. He's a Mossad, or they didn't admit he's a Mossad agent, um, who said that many people you don't know in the entertainment industry are, are involved in clandestine operations. And uh, I noticed when I, I rewatched part of the commentary. And for some reason, Fincher explicitly points out during the intro sequence, the, the early CGI intro sequence, where when they go up into the head, into the, the brain cavity, he said, now that's Arnon Milchon's credit when we go into the brain. Huh. Um, that's a very interesting comment, uh, it seems to me. And he also said that, you know, Arnon was great. He gave extra money, extra. He seemed to say that Arnon Milchon was very insistent that this movie get made and that Fincher get anything that he needed. Um, to, to get this, this made. He called it the brains behind the operation. Uh, <laughs> so a man who's a Mossad agent who, I mean, you can look at his illustrious career. He, he produced movies like JFK um, uh, as well. So. Super influential. He was a very uh, much involved in all kinds of nuclear secrets going to Israel. And he was sent to Los Angeles to be like a, an uh, intel asset here. So He's a remarkable character, very well connected. Friends of Ned Not, Netanyahu, the whole bit. And and Brett, it was it was uh, it was Milton's daughter, right, who co-produced Chapter Twenty Seven. Oh, oh yes, it goes it goes on and on. The feedback loop goes on and on. But speaking of, so the Clockwork Orange is mentioned in the novel. It is referred to in in the movie, and Fincher mentions it in the audio commentary. It's when they're they have the they they have the police captain in the bathroom, and they're going to cut his balls off. Um, the Masonic checkerboard floor. Um, and he said, yeah, this is a deal. He's making Tyler look like uh, Alex. And by the way, um, so one of the things that inspired Taxi Driver was the, the diary of Arthur Bramer, who sh shot, tried to kill um, George Wallace. And Bramer wrote in his diary that he was partially inspired by a clockwork orange. 
Oh, wow. Um, and of course, when Clockwork Orange, you, people know the story. Kubrick uh, supposedly personally got it pulled from theaters. I don't know how he did that in, in England because of the fear it was going to, to cause. So, of course, Hollywood has been aware of this. They understand, first of all, monkey see, monkey do. You know, putting this kind of stuff up on a screen that nobody had put up before is going to lead to, you know, the way people imitated Humphrey Bogart or Marilyn Monroe or whatever. They're going to start imitating these psychopaths that you put up on the screen, too. And yeah, and they're going to imitate Tyler Durden's. It's, it's pretty simple psychology actually right oh it's, it's really incredible it's incredible to think about some of these figures and how they've influenced the culture uh something else like it influenced me too like i used to think uh when i was younger i've been it's been 24 years or whatever since the the film came out but when i first watched it i thought that he was a laudable figure i just didn't know the kind of uh cultural secret society background and all the stuff that went into fight club but now i look back it's like this is uh this is all about chaos, magic, and destruction. There's nothing really positive about him. And it's it's also about being, like you said, schizophrenic, flat-out schizophrenia, disassociation. Um, yeah, the only positive things I could really say are that, um, <laughs> well, for one thing, it is it, it, it is a well-done film. Like, I have to go. There's maybe, like, one or two sequences watching it where uh, where it doesn't really work. Uh, but, like, that, but that's it. I mean, for the most part, I mean, just watching at the end, uh, the dawning realization of the narrator realizing how far Project Mayhem has infiltrated society. There, there's just some great shots, great moments. And, of course, like, I don't need to make the case that Fight Club's a good movie. Everyone knows Fight Club's a good movie, which is why it's so, it's so dangerous. And then I'll say that yeah some people hate it for bad reasons like people hate it for the opposite reasons of why they should um but that's that doesn't actually speak to anything positive of value here it just shows that people are manipulating you know through this movie through the movie and the part of the broader cultural psyop that it's attached to uh, manipulating the positive masculine impulse to uh to, to break out of the cultural prison but just by burying it and with even worse things and um, so, William, I see you're pulling up a clip. After that, I was going to say that let me, I could just go through Fincher's filmography and mention some highlights of things to maybe contextualize this movie within, uh, within Fincher's complicity within the Hollywood psyop. So I can maybe do that. Sure, you can. But it's interesting. I was watching this today. She like walks back. There's like the black sphere, the black box or whatever in the background. And uh, then they go on and, and there's the spherical curiosity. So it's almost like they had all this stuff in here on the secret societies. It's incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Please do. Please continue. Yeah, sure. So this will just this is just me kind of summarizing uh, Brett Brett and I's thoughts on uh, on a bunch of Fincher movies. People can listen through uh, through our old type cinema episodes on this. I think we did seven different Fincher episodes because we just found there to be so much there. But yeah, and uh, and we mentioned some of this earlier. Like Brett had mentioned about Alien Three. So this is it's it, it, all this cosmic horror, all this Lovecraftian and Gigarian stuff of just cosmic meaninglessness and monstrosity. And there's all this inverted and subverted religious imagery in there to, to basically you know, replace Christian hope and the idea of, uh, of there being boundaries and a foundation to what humanity is with just pure monstrosity, meaninglessness. And then with seven after that, Fincher gets into cultural nihilism. And it's, uh, it's more inversion in a related but different way where the 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 kind of superpowered uh so figured it would not literally superpowered uh glorified serial killer played by kevin spacey john doe like he's this christian fundamentalist as a, you know which is not a good representation of what a serial killer actually actually is um and so there's those inversions but then there's just the idea of um of whatever light there is at the end of the tunnel 
uh, leading deeper into hell. Like rather than it be any kind of escape, the movie just ends deeper, uh, this deeper trek into meaninglessness and just nihilism. And so this, this, this pessimism is to the point of despair on a cultural rather than cosmic level. The game, <laughs> the one after that, like this movie is crazy. Just Brett and I, I think when we watched this a while back for, uh, for our show, the game is just one of the most blatantly pro psyop movies ever where it's basically oh people the ultra rich within the banking class they're losing uh, a sense of joy in life and so it can be uh, basically spoilers for um, I'll, I'll mention there could be spoilers for anything i talk about here but uh, with the game like oh it's so great to see uh the the, the this ultra wealthy uh, uh figure just get psyop to the point of suicide and then that shows him meaning in life again because he's starting to despair and then he might have a romance with his handler who drove him into it at the end of the movie it's just the game is just crazy in terms of its depiction of mind control as a positive thing because it gives these superficial ideas of joy and adventure and creativity and life again to the listless, ultra-wealthy panic room. Relatively harmless compared to Fincher's other stuff. Just kind of an exercise in directorial control. Fincher showing his mastery over time and space. Brett might want to, uh, uh, Brett, of course, you can break in at any point or add things to whatever I say here. But I think we basically both thought that panic room wasn't quite as overtly sinister as a lot of Fincher's other stuff, some of the basic kind of early 2000s feelings of, of paranoia, social insecurity, and all of that. Um, then we get to Fight Club, what we're talking about, obviously. Zodiac, fascinating, what we spent basically a whole episode talking about, uh, about Zodiac, which is, I think, one of Fincher's best movies, right up there with Seven in terms of filmmaking quality. Um, but a, a very elaborate psyop meant to uh, feel like it's being... Uh, just hyper-realistic in terms of its depiction of the case. Like everyone, Fincher and all those involved with the creation of the movie went out of their way to talk about just how much detail they went into, into, into Zodiac and the history of what happened to portray that for the audience. Uh, but there's all these very subtle diversions there. Like all of Fincher's serial killer stuff, it's it's hiding the parapolitics just to talk about the kind of social phenomena and the, more of the nihilism and despair. Uh, so there's uh, there's some subtle things in the movie, some lines that basically try to hint that it's crazy to think about possible satanic or occult angles into uh, into serial killers and stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, but basically, it's all the idea that yeah, there's a sole perpetrator to the Zodiac killings, and and uh, basically, it's possible to figure out who that is is the is the essential psyop there, and also the idea that oh, to investigate these crimes, you have to be deranged and alienate your family and all of that. So the deranged investigator psyop, the idea that you can't you know just be a healthy family man and also uncover you know, parapolitical weirdness that you have to go crazy so zodiac is fascinating that's kind of what's going on there benjamin button the curious case of benjamin button is maybe it's in the running for my least favorite movie of all time it's just all this spielbergian sentimentality with the kind of creepiness that future naturally brings the whole thing is just sexual revolution programming and there's all because of the conceit of the reverse aging there's all this weird uh, PEDO just kind of coding for some of the stuff and it's just it's just so trite so superficial so gross so creepy I hate Benjamin Button Social Network also good movie but basically kind of similar to the game but not as intense and as much as it takes all the elements of the origins of mass social media um, and and Facebook and instead of, of instead of connections to tech oligarchs and the CIA and the uh, the emerging uh, surveillance state, it makes it a psychodrama about the elites and social alienation and, and all of that. 
Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, exceptionally important because there we get the movie worshiping its violent, dark avenging, insane heroine as basically a goddess. All of this anti-male, anti-patriarchy programming. I mean, the movie is like this, this woke fever dream about Christian Nazis torturing and killing Jewish women and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And from moment to moment, there's the idea that, oh, Elizabeth Salander, she's so traumatized because of the plight of women in our society. And you know, the opening title sequence, Brett and I lingered on that for quite a while. Uh, all the imagery there, I mean, it's all about you know, just liquidity and um, and uh, and darkness, kind of a nine inch nails, black, cold and infinite, like aesthetic uh, going on there. Phoenix from the ashes, uh, sharp things, needles, all, all of that kind of stuff was what Fincher says he had in mind when he was uh, designing the abstract imagery for the opening title sequence. But basically, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the moment in Fincher's filmography where we get the tip of the hand to where all this cultural destruction and destruction of the masculine is going. And it's the worship of this dark goddess figure. That, and I'll say, talk about this maybe, uh, maybe in another part of the conversation, I think is prefigured by Marla Singer in some important ways. House of Cards, um, rather than the conspiratorial reality of politics, we get the glorification of Machiavellian machinations of, oh, cool Kevin Spacey doing cool things and getting the audience to identify with the schemers and all of that. Pretty obvious side of what's going on there. Gone Girl, I think, is actually kind of positive uh, in certain ways because it has some actually good satire over like media hatred of men and stuff like that. But still, the idea there is that um, uh, is that this dark Fincher view of human relations showing marriage is more just psychopathy and manipulation and all of this stuff. Um, Mindhunter, I mentioned earlier, more of the same demonic deification of serial killers. Um, it's basically, Brett and I called it Manson family propaganda because all it does is completely vindicate the Manson family story about uh, what went on and obscures all the parapolitical dynamics. Mank, uh, you know, Fincher's movie from a couple of years ago about the writing of Citizen Kane, uh, kind of the glorification of controlled opposition, diversions about where propaganda actually is in Hollywood, all these mainstream, modern, lib ideas about fake news and stuff like that, and hiding the actual dynamics of propaganda in Hollywood. So anyway, if people want to hear like the hour-length version of any of those analyses, they can go back through our episodes, but you got Fight Club right in the middle there, or maybe a little bit closer toward the beginning, but... That was our assessment of what's going on with each of the Fincher properties. Cool. Great overview. Yeah. And so people can check that out at PSYOP Cinema, right? So they can just type that in, go to iTunes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, can, they can go on and they'll just see uh, our, our episode will be labeled Fincher 1, Fincher 2, et cetera. So they can hear more about any of that. But yeah, Brett, do you want to add anything into my uh, my Fincher overview there? Uh, only one short thing, and then, but it makes sense to go into Fincher's pre-movie background, which in, in advertising and stuff, which will bring us back to, to Fight Club. But I'll say in the game, there is a very explicit alchemical tinge, death and rebirth um, ritual that, that's part of what, what the game um, is. I just want to add here too, I mean, um, William, you turned me on to the Synanon cult. Not that I joined the Synanon cult, I mean, you just turned me on to its existence. Um, that that uh, rehab, when we, were, when we were talking about a scanner darkly, and they they use the game. I don't know if you mentioned on that episode, but they they use the game, um, which is a form of attack therapy, right. actually, a type That's of like right. a group attack therapy. And there's a school in Montana that got shut down just a few years ago called the Monarch School. Oh, some wow. kind of thing that was using the game and had oh. other charges of sex abuse and and so on going on. Charles um, Dieterich, that was the guy's name. He was the pre Jim Jones. 
he used to talk to his followers over like a you know speaker microphone ladies and gentlemen blah 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 actually the guy who actually sued him and got uh bit by a snake just passed away within the last couple of months i interviewed him paul morantz but he went in court head to head with charles uh, Dieterich, and Dieterich had uh it's an interesting story Dieterich put a snake in his mailbox and so when Morantz went out to get his mail. He actually literally got bit, had to go to the hospital. And I went and met with Morantz and uh, he handed me a copy of his book. And I think it was War Against the Colts. And uh, I shook his hand. It was still, he had a permanent injury. He His hand was basically kind of like a skeleton hand. It had desiccated. So uh, really interesting guy. So it's a shame. Uh, but I did three hours with him. So people can check that out. But yeah, Charles Dieterich, send it on. Well, the, the snake in the mailbox thing became very relevant to me also because I, I was analyzing a film called Color of Night in my Monarch series. I, I analyze these films that have all of these uh, mon uh, Monarch, you know, Illuminati mind control um, um, motifs. And I noticed there was a snake in a mailbox thing that, that came up. And so, but I, I mentioned the death and rebirth thing because that's what's going on in Fight Club too, obviously, right? Being dying and being reborn and getting a new identity. And the end, we mentioned the, the suicide, the significance of that, right? So that's a, that's a sort of suicide ritual you know it's 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 death by suicide and we're committing cultural suicide right it's like a ritualized cultural suicide i think that it that it represents i'm thinking of you know marilyn manson at that time had a lyric i'd sell you suicide from his irrational hate anthem song and um but yeah it's a death and rebirth ritual um i i think that is is, is what's at play i mean it's that's kind of what um initiation in some sense right it doesn't have to be so morbid but it is about dying to something and being born to something else and having your identity um, transformed, you know, but so Fincher's background was in, in, I mean, he grew up, you know, like by his own account, you know, a few doors down from, from George Lucas, his dad was a writer for the CIA linked um, time or life or both. Um, and so he grew up in the entertainment industry. He was a, uh, I don't know, like, um, you know, uh, third crew cinematographer when he was like 17, 18 years old for Return of the Jedi. Um, but he, he got his start in music videos and in advertising. And he is, um, I don't want to pretend to be an expert at it, but I think he's definitely in the, the top 10 list of like, you know, leading image makers and advertising in the late 80s to the 90s. He certainly, I, I can say with some, knowledge that he's one of the top music video um, um, directors, you know, I mean, work with everybody, Madonna, Rolling, I mean, you name it, right? He, he was one of the top um, directors. And so th this is something that's never talked about in uh, the coverage of the, of the movie and in all of the hand-wringing about the movie and the praise of the movie. It's taken for granted somehow that this is a subversive uh, movie, but as our friend Jason Horsey pointed out, this is a completely absurd, right? This man is the advertising industry. He is the image-making industry, and he didn't stop doing it with, with Fight Club. After, well, I mean, he did stop until 2002, I guess, with advertising until after Panic Room. Then he went right back. He did a Heineken commercial with Brad Pitt. See, there's Tyler Durden right winking at you. Um, the attitudes that the movie is selling you are not the attitudes of the filmmakers. And I mean, we can talk more about this. I don't know if you want to cut me off. I, I mean, I, I don't want to drone no, on, but no, I, what I'm, I think no, no, to cut, no. 
Well, to cut to the chase, I mean, I think what it's doing, what it's saying about advert, and, and I mean, Fincher says in the audio commentary that this is a statement about, I think it's something like how the use, I think, advertising has for society or the function of advertising in society or something like that. But he doesn't even pretend in that, that he's rejecting advertising, right? That he's, you know, uh, going no logo or something. He's, no, he's... He's saying uh, I, I, he's saying something about the function of advertising um, and how it can be used and how propaganda, you know, um, uh, can be used. And the whole new Hollywood generation that people like him and um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and people are they're, they're kind of the they're not they're not the new Hollywood generation. They're the post new Hollywood generation, the Gen X people that followed upon them. And this is a generation that used cultural propaganda and sexual revolution stuff. And they, they engineered the culture, right? Using the tools that they saw being used the wrong way, um, you know, before to promote conformity or, or whatever and social hygiene uh, and whatnot. So that's what he's really saying about it. And Durden is the cultural engineer, you know, par excellence. And no, they're not rejecting. And by the way, there's so many products. It, there's, a, there's a huge number of paid products. Like Krispy Kreme, Pepsi is everywhere. I mean, even that Pe Pepsi Generation Next commercial and the rest of it. Why would advertisers pay to have their stuff in the movie if this movie is subverting corporations and advertising? That's a great point. Like <laughs> this is never pointed out. It's incredible. Right. That's the way it starts is the total you know, criticism of uh, modern consumerist culture. So it is incredible. Did they, Do you know if uh, Starbucks paid to have their... They're, yes, they yeah, did. I'm pretty sure they did. Yes, wow. a bunch of corp like 11 or 12 corporations uh, paid for product placement uh, to be in the movie. This man kept making it. Uh, 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 Tyler Durden himself, right? Brad Pitt appears in the Heineken commercial that Fincher directed um, later. I mean, David Fincher was a prostitute for the entertainment, and he was really good at what he did. He's a he's a powerful. I say image maker, right? I maybe he'll take. I I don't mean just like a still image. I I, I mean something more broad but i mean but music videos were about image making and and that's okay. a lot of interesting directors you know cut their teeth doing that in the in the 80s and 90s and he was one of the best and i mean seven is just pure image making right he understands how to coordinate music and visual and how to i mean light everything and and how to process he he's become uh an expert at, at, at technique but at the end of the day like it, it's all just a game there's not any um there's not any real soul here. He's just an operative. He is the industry. He is just a reflection of the machine. He is Hollywood. Agreed. Right. I was looking right here. I mean, you can look at his his video uh, credits. They're incredible. Like he's done 50. Just goes all the way through here. Watley, The Outfield, Mark Knopfler, Loverboy, Rick Springfield. All in the 90s. I mean, some recent ones. <clears throat> There's Judith Perfect Circle. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely an image maker. I think he succeeded with Fight Club, really. I mean, I think that that Tyler Durden image is kind of like uh, coveted, you know, wanting to be this kind of guy. I think that's, that's what he imparted. I think he did, did a good job. If he was hired by Milchin to do it, they got the right guy, I guess. 
Yeah, they certainly did. I mean, and if like we're entering into a cultural phase where Durden is less relevant, it's it's because we've entered into something even more negative and even more corrupt stage of the cultural side where you don't have to pretend to have that subversion and vitality. Now it's just a, a cultural race to see who's most aligned with the dominant woke occult anti-human so superculture. You don't even really have to feign the rebellion so much anymore. The assaults on humanity are just that much more uh, that much more blatant and often through art that is way less skillful than what at least Fincher could bring. And um, oh, I want to say on the music video thing that yeah, I, I thought of this when um, uh, yeah, Brett, you mentioned the irresponsible hate anthem from Marilyn Manson. So the, the very first track on Antichrist Superstar and you know very first line is "I'm so all American, I'll sell you suicide." And then uh, uh, the uh, Manson's um, uh, musical mentor uh, was a Trent Reznor, of course, who produced that album, and then Fincher uh, directed a Nine Inch Nails music video in 2005. Yeah, this one. Yeah, for the track only off of the With Teeth album. And uh, there, just the um, the resonance with the Flight Club dissociative themes, very unsurprising for anyone who knows anything about Nine Inch Nails. I mean, this kind of feeds into the whole cultural feedback cycle that we talk about so much. You can think about their most iconic album earlier in the 90s, um, you know, the downward spiral being recorded in the Tate house, um, you know, the, the, of, the, of the murders. And then, um, but then, yeah, the, the 2005, I mean, the lyrics to the song, I mean, so the video is pretty, um, it's pretty simple. Uh, you know, Fincher doesn't really do a whole lot there, but he did direct it. So it's just images of blaring speakers and, um, and uh, Trent Reznor's face in a pin art board, screensaver stuff on the computer. So some suggestive things. But uh, but yeah, the lyrics are like, yes, I am alone. But then again, I always was as far back as I can tell. I think maybe it's because because you were never real to begin with. I just made you out to hurt myself. And it worked. Yes, it did. There is no you. There is only me. That, la that last line gets repeated over and over and over again. So there you have Trent Reznor and uh, David Fincher coming together to do very, very uh, much Fight Club dissociative music video and song there. And I mean, I've been telling listeners that I would do like a, a deep dive on Nine Inch Nails. And I, 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 I have been saying that probably for over a year and I eventually will. But yeah, and now Reznor and has done soundtracks for or scores right. rather for um, yeah. for so many Fincher projects since then. So he's an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, you could do a deep dive on Nine Inch Nails and Reznor. He goes way back, and his side project is How to Kill Angels, which he took from uh, Peter Christofferson, who I studied pretty much in depth. Total Crowley, Black Magician, uh, Illuminative Thanateros type, you know, Burroughs lover. Uh, so. I think his pedigree is, uh, you could, he has an occult pedigree, no doubt. And these guys, they're, they're across each other's paths. A lot of them do, but, uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what Fincher's real, uh, pedigree is. He's like, I don't know what, if, if he's has any overt kind of occult kind of connections, but I think it's, you see it play out in his films. I mean, he's worked with, uh, what's the guy who was the head of uh, house of cards. That dude's a flat out heavy duty occultist. Um, What's the actor's name again? You just mentioned his name. Oh, Kevin Spacey? Yeah, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whoa. It gets super deep. Um, the only he thing I know... Yeah, oh, the only thing I know about his religious background, and he probably professes to be... Most directors profess to be atheist, is he's known to have solicited some like popular... Um, what seems to me to be some Hollywood grifter medium or psychic or something like that. He's known to be one of the clients of 
Um, but other than that, I there's not a lot out there about his religious oh, background. Yeah, Kevin Spacey, you look up albino alligator and look up that meaning. That's super cool. It's right out of the Illuminati cards. Like he, um, whoa, he knows a lot. He's that guy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's really weird to watch House of Cards now just with everything that's come out about Kevin Spacey since then and the Epstein connections and all that. So watching him, you know, play, he played the president in a show where he's being so glorified. Oh, because he's so badass and cutthroat and he sees all through the ideology. It's all just cynical power games. And that's cool. Like it, it's so dated, but it's also just like very. It's also it's yeah it's also very chilling yeah but with the, all those connections that you just mentioned and you know the fact that you know he was called the king of Davos one year and he's you know with the, the whole uh, what World Economic Forum said and all of that so plenty of stuff there's, there's a video out there of Spacey at the White House with Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton it's the scariest video I've ever seen in my life like they're joking around but like if you know these people you'd be terrified just fake laughter it's like a house of horrors I gotta find that video. It's incredible. So he's friends with the Clintons. Hmm. I mean, wow. And, yeah. yeah, and thinking about um, Fincher's possible beliefs and disposition and what kind of connections he actually has. I, you know, I, I wish I knew a little bit more about Polinuk, who we were talking about earlier, but I was just thinking, you know, he wrote that one of his books is called Damned, and it's about like a teenage girl's journey through hell. And it's like a, you know, it's a satire like most of his stuff. And you're there, I, I, I saw one comment where he said about just how much theology and demonology he read for that book but he didn't really talk right. about what exactly he read and i was just kind of curious about that and he just seems palinuk is just kind of disingenuous to me in terms of the talking about the significance of fight club there's a popular clip of him with joe rogan and stuff and there he's always oh, she's talking oh it's written for men and there's nothing really that speaks to men and men's plights and concerns and it's, it's sidestepping all of like the major sinister stuff and obvious themes of the book and all that and he's talked about the need for uh he gets more interested in religion as he gets older because we need a blueprint for life and all this really trite stuff and so it just makes me think like palinuk is pretty aware of what's going on he's just being coy about it yeah he's being coy he's in that they put him in the same kind of theme as uh transgressive literature transgressive fiction he's in there with some big heavyweight uh creeps like uh william burroughs george bataille that's a whole nother show we yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do a show about that. But I was just—I thought about that when you mentioned Burroughs earlier. Is that like, yeah, speaking of a literary lineage, yeah, going back to just horrifying. Brett Easton Ellis. Yes, like, I think there was one book that Ellis did. I don't know if it was American Psycho, but it was just like chopping up bodies. Like the whole thing is about chopping up bodies. And he did a terrible Smiley Face Killers. Uh, my opinion was like a cover up, but he did something where the artwork kind of ripped off my artwork. It's such a joke. But Kapalniuk is in very strange uh, bedfellows with some other things, all kind of, you know, crazy, antisocial, nihilistic. It's all there. Like he's, he's in that same vein. And I've been, I've been reading, I actually have a book on George Bataille right in front of my face, but Bataille is something else, man. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Company yeah, we should talk sometime about like I would love to talk about like Nick Land's interest in Bataille and all of yeah. that. There's, oh. there's so much there, but yeah, you can definitely see the echoes of that kind of pure depravity in yes. Palinuk's stuff, and you see the hints of like where he's like trying. Oh, Palinuk is trying to be more humanistic at certain points, but I mean, you read some of his stuff. I think back to some of his short stories and things like that, and I don't even want to summarize the plot details or anything because it's just so stomach churned that like, okay, this is not a healthy individual who has anything good in mind for humanity who could come up with some of just how 
just purely disgusting, like some of the stuff is in his stories. And, you know, so there's some even recurring tropes of, uh, of incest and stuff like that. And you even get hints of that in Fight Club with the weird, with the weird thing about um, the, the kind of love triangle narrator and Tyler and Marla and just right. how much Tyler having sex with Marla is emphasized and the narrator's weird, weird relationship with Marla and the kind of homoerotic undertones of him and Tyler. And, you know, Palinuk's a homosexual, of course, so all of that is, uh, is, is very intentional. And I forget if it might have been Fincher who had the comment of, oh, I kept the homoerotic stuff in the movie because it's a diversion. So the audience wouldn't see the twist coming. And I'm just like, no, nah, man, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. This is just what it looks like. Uh, that sitting next to Tyler in the bathtub while Tyler says, maybe another woman isn't what we need or whatever. Like, this isn't right. a diversion because of the twist. This is the promotion of homoeroticism as part of this of this uh, pseudo rebellion, just as a way of like you know, Fight Club is dressed up as this very male, just very masculine kind of thing. But all it is is incepting these later cultural developments in terms of the hyper prevalence of LGBTQ stuff and, and and everything like that. That's that's another thing going on there. Yeah, man, there's a lot. There's a lot of connections. There's a lot of things going on, and it's just the it's just the. The overview of the kind of uh, occulted, nihilistic, uh, anti—just no religion, no kind of biblical religion. Religion, really. That's what all these guys are involved in. Whether it's Nine Inch Nails, Palniuk, Fincher, they are fairly sim. They're fairly similar in their uh, outlook, actually, in my opinion. So, is there anything no, you guys would like to add? I mean, we're at about ninety minutes. I feel like we've kind of, uh, you know, twisted the. The towel of all the water at least for me do you guys have anything else you want to add well i mean golly yeah well, there's, there's so much, there's so much that we could there's so much that we could add i was going to say that a lot that a lot of the suicide stuff right i mentioned marilyn manson obviously it's in a uh, nine inch nails and 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 the 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 suicide ritual and fight clubs i mean there's this uh, I call it mass omega programming. If people know the kind of monarch programming stuff that Fritz Springmeier explains, omega programming is the, the sort of self-destruct mechanism that's programmed into mind control victims. And if you see culture as kind of a form of mind control, right, writ, writ large, yeah. you see these suicide messages that are, that are put. I mean, this is even there, there's even a uh, a record of this in litigation, right, where like Judas Priest was sued. And by the way, they hired the guy. Um, was it Brian Scott Key or something who wrote the book Subliminal Seduction, which was a huge influence on this movie on, on Fight Club. And so, I mean, I guess if there's one more thing to talk about that we shouldn't neglect, it would be the subliminal uh, imagery and um, the meaning of this. And so that book was about how advertisers were putting this really sometimes sinister subliminal imageries of sex and death or really, really the two, the two big themes he was showing in these, these images that were embedded uh into all this advertising of the, this is in the late seventies, you know, when it's, when it's released. Um, and so of course, Tyler is inserting himself. Um, he's playing dirty tricks with us and he's showing us dirty stuff that's, that's put in advertising and which is giving away, I think the, the plot that all of this is, is really a psychological assault and a way to, you know, blacken your soul. Um, but that the technique that's used in, in fight club is the same one that's used in the exorcist. Um, to insert subliminal imagery and uh, in a movie called uh, I, I something my skull <laughs> I, I I had it on the tip of my tongue but a 1958 movie something about screaming skull skull screaming I get it confused with another movie from that era but anyway they that was the first use of the of the technique and it was a skull it was like a subliminal skull attacking the audience like death 
you know, um, um, I think that the exorcist got sued for putting in the subliminals. Somebody got pissed off, and I think there was a suit over it. There's a lot. There's probably other. Somebody should go into the legislative record on this. I'm sorry, the legislative, the, the litigation record on this. Um, there's probably other lawsuits around this stuff. I mean, there's two famous ones right there. And uh, if I were to add, I guess, just two points to, to close, because, I mean, we could just go endlessly, and that's part of the thing. These things are connected to feedback loops by design, so we don't want to let that run away with us and just talk forever about every connected point, because um, because that's a possibility. And, the, oh, yeah, William, I see that you pulled up the, the, the exorcist subliminal image, and that's, um, um, yes, that's terrifying. Uh, but I, I guess if I were to um, add two points, it would be one would be the character Marla Singer and the other would be about Jared Leto. And so uh, I, I alluded to this earlier, but um, Marla Singer, so this really hit me watching the movie this time is that uh, is the line near the beginning that this all has something to do with a girl named Marla Singer. And, uh, and it's something that I kind of missed when we did our first uh, our, our first pass on this movie, uh, Brett and I, uh, just uh, over a year ago. Uh, but it's something that I look for a lot now is, again, like once you see that, like I said, this Joker archetype as the um, embodiment of the masculine, you see the dark goddess not far behind. You see the siren follow behind the Joker, behind the trickster. And like I said, the girl with the dragon tattoo, um, uh, the, the Elizabeth Salander character. But there's a couple of hints in Fight Club that that's also what's going on there. You have So you have Tyler, this interesting line where he warns the narrator that Marla is something like a predator posing as a house pet or, some, or something like that. But for most of the movie, she's a, she, you know, she's a victim. And she, you know, she's this, this person who's in despair, going to these same groups as the narrator, and then getting kind of tossed around by, by Tyler and all of these things. But you have this key line from Tyler where he says, I'll say this about Marla, at least she's trying to hit bottom kind of uh, reprimanding the narrator for not being as um, uh, not being as intentional in that way of trying to destroy himself as Marla is. So at the end, we've already talked about the end. He's not overcoming Tyler. He's embodying Tyler. So then by shooting himself, he's not just embodying Tyler's values. He's hit bottom exactly what Marla has been trying to do the whole movie in terms of her own destruction and her subjecting herself to, to this destructive relationship with Tyler and all of these things. But the only reason the narrator has this romantic relationship with uh, Marla at the end is because uh, the because of Marla's romantic and hypersexual relationship with Tyler throughout the movie. Like she's there for the narrator because he precisely because he dissociated into Tyler because of Tyler's wit and intelligence and cynicism and sexual prowess and all of these things. So, uh, so there at the end, again, it's not an overcoming of Tyler. It's a him taking on that mantle and assuming both the, the Joker, Tyler figure for himself with all of its corrosiveness to the human psyche and to healthy masculinity and all these things. But then he's also basically embracing the Marla paradigm. He's self-destructed just like she has been doing. He's become a person that she wants to be with. So it's, it's kind of, it reminds me of some of the things that we talked about with, uh, uh, with Jason Horsley about his Kubrick book, about in some of these, these, um, these pieces of media, like The Shining or like Eyes Wide Shut, the, the, the complicity of the, um, of the love interest figure in these, uh, the, in these films with, um, with the wife figures, with the overall side, it's so you can barely see it because it's so all per pervasive, because this is all about evoking the, the kind of pantheistic, 
this dissolution of boundaries in the name of the dark divine feminine. So I think that's going on with Fight Club too. I totally missed that first time I watched the movie for the show. But this is Marla Singer hovering in the background as conjoining with the Tyler psyop in terms of what the narrator dissociates into at the end. And all of that is simply a preview for a time when we don't even need Tyler figures anymore because we have Elizabeth Salander in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. So I think psychologically, Marla is really, really key to what, and socially and metaphysically in terms of dark goddess stuff to what's going on there. So I can, I can say something about Leto and his importance, but I'll, I'll pause there in case um, either of you guys have something to, to add. No, do you want to comment, uh, Brett? Okay, well, for running out of time, I do want to point out that um, Polnick, and he did an audio commentary for the, the DVD released in 2000 or so, um, and he said he took the name Tyler from the 1960 Disney movie, Toby Tyler or 10 Weeks with a Circus. Durden, he says, is like somebody he knew. Um, but so the, it comes from this movie that, that refers to a circus. So there we have, right, clown, you know, trickster. I think it reinforces definitely um, the, that archetype. Um, and... Um, I also noticed when I watched the film again, and I just, I would say too, I just don't, I really don't like this movie anymore. It's really obnoxious, uh, to, honestly, to, to, to watch it anymore. It's not a pleasure to have to watch this movie again. But I did notice that, you know, when he's looking at that pseudo Ikea catalog, it says, um, it's, it's, this message is only visible for a beat or so. So it's, and it's not even in the center of the frame. So it's kind of, it, subliminal or pseudo subliminal parasubliminal it says use your imagination so he's kind of getting this this message from advertising to dissociate into multiple identities and isn't that what advertising is making him do right it's making him go into it shows it too right his, his living room is he's turning into the, this other reality right he's dissociating anyway so he's kind of been primed um to dissociate differently because <laughs> he's all he's already doing it through the advertising industry right, interesting yeah, and isn't that kind of what he was doing? Like he's an insomniac. Like he does these things. He's isolated. He has no friends. Like he does all the things you do to like have a terrible mental situation. Like from the very beginning, he has no friends other than Fight Club. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's all about just the total isolation. And then he's just, his, his friend is culture. And where does the first matrix lead him into? But to the second matrix. All the surface level consumerism. It just... Uh, it, it just breeds the more sinister, more intentional occult, initiatory, dissociative side stuff. Yeah, that's great points just now, Brett. Yeah, that, 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 I, I, hadn't, I hadn't caught that. that. That's really important about that advertisement in the film. And yeah, I'll just say I was going to, I, was, um, I have so many notes on Jared Leto, but a lot of it would just be uh, repeating stuff uh, that Brett and I talked about in one of our episodes where we, um, after we did a couple of episodes on the chapter 27 film, which is an incredibly important part of the Joker cycle that, uh, uh, that Brett and I had mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, we did an episode more on Leto's career as a rock star in 30 seconds to Mars. And Leto just plugs into all of this in so many ways. Like, like Brett mentioned earlier, there's the really, really uh, just uh, pointed moment in the film in Fight Club when Tyler Durden says, we all, we're all told that we're going to be movie gods and millionaires and rock stars and just looks directly at Jared Leto, like an inch away from his face. And yeah, I think 30 Seconds to Mars had technically already ex existed by 1999, made for like a year, but they weren't, they weren't anybody. They weren't on anybody's radar or had, I don't even know if they had released music 
at that point under uh, under that name. So uh, this was long before Leto was actually a rock god. But Thirty Seconds to Mars and his career with uh, and his career with uh, with them. I mean, it's just such a perfect example of just so blatantly synthetic, satanic cultural engineering i mean it's all all of the unhealthy and psychopathic dynamics of rock star style celebrity are just turned up to 11 with leto where he just makes himself into this messiah figure where he tries to look like jesus right. and where he, they treat their fans just like uh like cult members i mean literally i think they trademarked the phrase yes this is a cult which they've been using for close to two decades now flashing it uh pseudo subliminally music videos are blatantly on screen during concerts selling it as merchandise saying things like your family won't understand just like fans just like paying exorbitant amounts of money not just for meet and greets but for going to their private island where they basically worship Leto almost like a god and uh, or, or just weird things like uh, fans could get in a music video if they tattooed lyrics from the song onto themselves or just wow. selling so much merch that has all the most demonic and mind control-esque lyrics like on it. I mean, I could, there's just so many things, but basically Leto uh, just blatantly says that, yeah, he's uh, he's a cult leader. Their fans are a cult. They do things like uh, like a New York Times article. I think it might have been from like a uh, like a, a couple decades ago. Even said about a fan sending a severed ear to Leto, which he thought was cool, and and all of that. And Leto's spiritual interests are, of course, very esoteric, and all of this inversion of Christian stuff and everything, and some of their symbolism. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And so he gets this early role in Fight Club. He was also an American Psycho as a side character, which is interesting. And with that, he's right. just like right. stuff in different ways. But then later he plays the Joker. You know, he plays the Joker and uh, he, we have an episode on Suicide Squad that'll be released shortly. And he play, yeah, he plays the Joker. He does all these other roles that are very suggestive in a similar way. Brett and I have done an episode. We did an episode on Highway, on all the sexual revolution program. And we did an episode on Mr. Nobody, which is basically MK Ultra, by the way, of stoner philosophy, multiverse nonsense. I mean, it just doesn't end with Leto. There are so many things. Um, and he, uh, and in, I think in 2015, he bought the Lookout Mountain Air Force Station. So he lives in Laurel Canyon now. Um, so Leto is obviously very aware of all of this and he's making it public, his, his part in the lineage of cultural engineering. Um, so I will say there's so many more relevant details I can give about 30 Seconds to Mars symbols, their lyrics, their music videos, Leto's different roles, weird things that suggest uh, intelligence involvement or occult involvement in terms of his stuff. Oh, like uh, the photo of him wearing with like a black sun, the black sun symbol on a T-shirt, like at one point is very, very interesting, especially because from 2014 onward, he's been a huge booster of the CIA approved Western narrative in terms of Ukraine and everything. Uh, so I could just go on and on and on about Leto, but we had we did an hour and a half on Leto for one of our episodes. So I would just say people should check that out. But in terms of Leto's role in this movie and him playing the Joker later on, it's just a very very blatant part of the the Hollywood psyop. Yeah. So if you're you, people don't know the Lookout Mountain reference, I mean that was like ground zero for counterculture, cultural revolution psyops. If people know Dave McGowan. Um, and weird scenes inside the, the canyon and so forth. But you notice in fight, this is something I, 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 that became more significant to me this last time I watched Fight Club that you notice the Leto character, the angel face character, he becomes the chief lieutenant of Tyler Durden after he's, you know, pummeled into, into disfigurement in one eye, right? He's got the one eye 
thing going on. Um, and he becomes a chief lieutenant. And, you know, my mind was drawn back to you know, Alex J-O-N-E-S uh, tells a story about um, he, he was acquaintances with the, the screenwriter for one of the Star Wars sequels, or maybe he did the two and three. I can't remember. But he said that he explained the disfigurement right, of, of um, so many of the top people um in in whichever version of star wars that you see so the emperor and darth vader and all the other iterations of them they're disfigured because you have to be disfigured in order to go up the hierarchy and that's a metaphor too i mean it's you know these things are are correlative i mean it could be literal in some way too but i mean it's a metaphor for disfiguring your soul you know and that's how you work your way up the hierarchy and jared leto certainly did yes it, it, the rabbit hole is very deep i mean he went this prominent CIA whistleblower was a, was a high school teacher of his and they did a video together and he has a lot of weird, um, uh, weird connections. Um, I just want to say that I, I, there's a slogan that I, I really want to get out there that kind of sums all of this up. You know, the uh, Victor David Hansen, this guy who appears on the Tucker Carlson show all the time, he wrote this article recently. Um, I don't know if it was the title, but it was, a, I think it was probably the title, um, but it was um, the establishment is the revolution. You know, and so that's the key to Fight Club. When you understand that the establishment is the revolution, right? You you see that this is this is a psyop. It's a it's a fake revolution, right? It's telling you there is no real revolution, and that's the kind of idea behind guerrilla marketing and all of it. It's it's that there is no way out of advertising. That's what that's what David Fincher's life and career should be telling you that he doesn't think there's a way out of advertising. There's an escape that the Tyler Durden's selling you. That's a dream, right? There, this is permanent. Um, no, it's not permanent, but I mean, of course, it's all self-perpetuating, right? These, like any other institution, you know, advertising or Hollywood, or it just it's trying to perpetuate itself. Like every bureaucracy, bureaucratic inertia. So it, it glorifies itself and it's it's messaging. It celebrates itself and it's saying, yeah, there's no way, there's no way out of the matrix. There's just another matrix, <laughs> as, as Thomas uh, said, referring to Jason Horsley. All right, crazy. His CIA boss or teacher was John. Kiriaku, wow. I think he went to jail. He exposed something. Kiriaku went to the big house. Yeah, and yeah, he was in jail for a couple of years. But yeah, no, it's just one of the many pieces of the puzzle that you know, Leto grows up just moving around so much, just being surrounded by all these hippie art collective types. And all of a sudden, somehow he's in like this really expensive Beltway high school being taught by the CIA teacher, um, the CIA, CIA agent teacher and all of that. So all these interesting connections and coincidences there. Oh, by the way, William, in the chat, I sent you a link to the T-shirt that I mentioned that of Leto wearing with the symbol. So if you wanna, if you wanna see that, that's there. That's the sun in red. The sun in red. Sun in red, yeah. Black sun. Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> That's a well, tough one to explain away. Yeah. Well, William, you were telling us about Helena Bonham Carter's background before the show, before we went live, I think. Yeah, I think it, her dad was like uh, the head of the Bank of England, like huge. And I think she went to their version of like the best um, private schools in high school. She went to Westminster, like it's literally attached to Westminster Abbey. <laughs> like I think that's where she went. So she, I think, is amongst the elite, but. She shows up everywhere. She's kind of like Lido, I guess. She shows up in Harry Potter, Fight Club. Very important film. She's around. Well, and virtually everybody offered the role of Marla Singer as Sauce. I mean, Winona Ryder or, or auditioned for it or was considered for it or whatever. I mean, Winona Ryder's one of them who's uh, 
you know, Timothy Leary's niece or whatever. We talked about her in, in Scanner Darkly. So the the usual suspects. Right. Um, no, it's incredible. Incredible stuff. But like, I think that Helena Barnum Carter, like other occult, wasn't she like a witch in um, Harry Potter, but she was in something else. I oh, she's in Tim Burton's stuff and she's in the that's Alice in Wonderland right. thing. And yeah, that's right. ultra sus. Very sus. All kinds of interesting. Very busy. Very busy. Very uh, hired actor, actress. I should say. I don't know if they, are you allowed to call them actors now or actresses. I can't remember. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't keep up. It's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to keep up. Yeah, we're all destined for woke hell at this point. Yeah, so. not really. No, no hope. But there's no redemption in that religion. No zero redemption. Only punishment. Punishment for everybody. Guys, we are at, let's see, we are at one hour, 50 minutes. Is there anything, people can check out all your stuff. So you, you can go in detail about all your Joker research, Fincher research, some of the stuff we've done, the other, uh, what else What else have you guys done recently? You talked to Jay Dyer, I saw was on there. You've done a lot of interviews with Corsley too. How many have you done with Jay Dyer? Uh, with Jay, let's see. We um, we had him on our show uh, at one point. We talked about the movie Come True. We went on his and we talked about a few different a few different movies, including The Empty Man, which is very important. Uh, we did the Anya Taylor Joy um, episode with him a couple months ago, and then we did the episode with him and Father Deacon Ananias uh, just pretty recently. Just kind of more meta conversation about art and entertainment from a, from a Christian perspective. So. I think I think those are the ones we've done with him so far, and I'm I'm sure more, I'm sure more in the future. So yeah, but if people enjoy what they just heard, I mean, I, I hope that they've heard some of our other collaborations with you, William. If not, there's many of those to check out, as you listed at the at the beginning. I think the one that uh, that you and I did with, uh, with Theodore was was good. The other month, um, yeah, for sure. stuff, and but the the full Joker series and that's still going on, and we're we've got a couple more things on Leto that we're going to be doing the full Fincher series. People can check all that out. So, um, so plenty of uh, jumping off point from this conversation for for more detail, both in terms of our already produced and released content, and towards and uh, in terms of stuff that'll be uh, that'll be coming out shortly. Like I said, we had, we recorded a Suicide Squad episode um, about the, right. the the Jared Leto Joker movie that'll be uh, coming out soon. So that and a lot of other stuff. Doesn't the Suicide Squad have tons of smiley face imagery in it too? I, th I think even the cover does, doesn't it? Isn't it a big smiley face if I remember? Like they can't get away from it. Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> That's everywhere. Um, thanks so much for your time, guys. Really fascinating as usual. Love having you back. Super knowledgeable. People, go check out PSYOP Cinema. I'll put a link to their show on iTunes, and it's Tom and Brett. And uh, where's the best place for people to reach out to you? Is it on uh, Twitter? Or, yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, people can reach out on on Twitter. They can message. Uh, they can message us there, or we have uh, we have emails associated with the podcast for both of us. Listen in the descriptions of all of our episodes, so um, uh, so people can uh, send us an email as well if they want to get us. If they if they want to get in touch with us. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Thanks so much for your time, guys. Again, we talked Thanks, about. William. Yeah, thank you, uh, Fight Club, and its impact. I mean, I think uh, my opinion of it it just gotten darker and uglier over time. But yeah, they definitely. I think it was a, an important kind of benchmark for people to understand, particularly me. Like my opinion of it has changed over time. I used to, it's it's unbelievable to think I used to think Tyler Durden was kind of an admirable character, but uh, kind of a bit wiser. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Yeah, thanks, William. All right, let's do that.